Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Coming up in a little while, have you any idea how many people are driving around with no full license driving around on learners permits now that's one thing but there's 1400 people in the country yes 1400 people driving around with learner permits that they've had for over 25 years i'm kidding you not some of them are in cork we don't quite know how many huge backlog there are a total of i'll come back to this later on you're going to love these figures 25000 people in cork presently driving on learner permits and you wonder do they always have a qualified driver with them I kind of bet that not all of them do and they're kind of supposed to I will come back to that one uh, this morning, good morning to you 1850 the number, another round of free speaker frenzy also to come between now and midday I want to start though today by exploring some of this stuff that is going around about Delta variants and testing and where other countries are compared to us and all of that. Reported in the radio news this morning, and it's in all of your newspapers too, one one in five cases of COVID that were diagnosed in this country in the past week were of the Delta variant, this worrying Delta variant that spreads faster and can make some people sicker. And the worry is it'll get ahead of the vaccination race. The vaccination race is going much better than it was. The problem is that most of the cases are spreading now among young people and they are not vaccinated yet. There was 284 further cases of COVID confirmed last evening. Now, what they always tell you is don't look at the cases such as such. Look at the numbers in hospital and the numbers in intensive care. And the good news is Yesterday, we had our lowest number in intensive care since last September. There's only 13 people in the whole country currently in intensive care, COVID-related. There's only 53 people in hospital in the whole country uh, with COVID-related issues, which means, effectively, that hospital admissions and ICU admissions have fallen off a cliff, which clearly means the vaccination program is having a massive effect on that The worrying thing is if Delta gets a grip and gets more of a grip than it already has, could we be back in trouble again? Could we be facing into another set of tightened restrictions? Well, according to a man who's been a regular guest on this program, and hopefully we get an opportunity to speak with him again soon, he's one of the most senior figures in the World Health Organization. I speak of Dr. David Nabarro. He has been saying, look... Ireland really shouldn't need to go back into tighter restrictions once the public health system is well equipped, once we can isolate outbreaks, once we can make sure we know where every case is, where every outbreak is. It's the whole test, 
trace, isolate, outbreak control, infection management. The WHO is saying if we do that much right, we will be okay in terms of Delta variant. And in fairness, that is what... And think about him now. Another man I haven't had on for a while. Must catch up with him again. Uh, Dr. Niall Conroy in Australia, in Queensland, where they've done a remarkable job. And Dr. Conroy leads a huge team of people. And he has been telling us for months and months, and he's on Twitter every day, infection control, outbreak management. It doesn't really matter where the case is. Once you know where it is, once you know where it's spreading from, once you know where it's spreading to, you can control it. And that's where we kind of need to be. And all that is enough for me. Let us bring in someone who's not been on the show for a little while. Uh, Professor Liam Fanning, he's Professor of Immunovirology at UCC. And I wanted to bring a couple of those issues to his attention this morning. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning, TJ. Let's go through it, um, I suppose, from top to bottom. Should we be worried about the fact that we now have 25% of the cases diagnosed in the past week were Delta? Well, if you're vaccinated, the, the short answer is no, because the vaccines that we know give you good protection against this variant and all the other variants that have risen so far. So, so we can set that large group of individuals at ease uh, immediately. For those individuals that have one shot, they're quite largely protected um, against symptomatic disease, against every um, variant so far. Less so than when they have the two shots. When they have the two shots, they have more. So just to give you... Um, an example, you know, the, the Alpha variant, um, when you were had, the, that's the, the English variant or the Kent yeah. variant, whatever you want to call it. That's the one we used um, to, that's the one that started the problems in January. That, exactly. Well, it, it was the one that ramped up the infectious rate, so the changes to the virus actually made it more transmissible. And the, the Delta virus has, has again a slight another change to its coat, the spike protein on the outside, which makes it more transmissible again. And, uh, you know, so the coverage from the Alpha variant after two shots, um, of uh, vaccine gave you 92% for the alpha and 79% against the, the delta variant. Um, and then for the Oxford, that was for the Pfizer vaccine. Liam, just to Oxford. pause you for a moment, what does that percentage mean? So I, I've had my two, my two yeah. Pfizers and I've had my waiting time afterwards. So yeah. let's imagine that there's delta in the room right now. Mm-hmm. Like, what are my chances of getting it? So that's protection against infection, yeah. right? Um, and uh, so if you consider, we'll say you were in a room full of people who had the Alpha variant, well, then you were 92% protected against getting the infection. And if it was you changed rooms and you went into a room where they had the Delta variant, then you were 79% protected against infection. But remember, I am protection, you are still protected against symptomatic disease. Do you know what I mean? So, so there's, a, there's quite a difference between... Yeah. Protection from disease, and we'll say, um, um, we'll say, disease yeah. that gives you. My, my chances of actually hospital. getting sick are greatly yeah, reduced. Yes, exa- exactly. Now, and what even are, if you what have are, what? the infection, PJ, sorry, this is an yeah. important point. You have less of the virus anyway, so you're less likely to transmit it. That's why vaccination is probably as one of the reasons why vaccination has also broken the chain between infection and yeah. transmission. I was just going to ask that question. So I happen to be here in this room. There's Delta in the room. I'm double vaccinated. So I get infected. I won't get sick. That's great. My chances are vastly reduced. So I pop in next door to my colleague who isn't yet vaccinated and I have a chat with him or her. What are their chances of picking it up off me? Um, if, if, well, if you're in close contact with them in a room, we'll say, with no ventilation um, and you're sitting down having a cup of tea with them and you're not masked, uh, nobody's masked, uh, they're not masked anyway, whatever about yourself, you can probably drop the mask. 
and because you're vaccinated uh, when you're talking to them they have probably depending how long if they're in contact with you for about two hours they probably have about a 50% chance of picking up that virus right which is a lot less than it was before I was vaccinated Oh God, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, you, sorry, your, so your, so wait, let's let's hear it. So there, so if you have the virus uh, and you're vaccinated, you have less of it there, and they're in the room with you, unvaccinated. Um, then, uh, then oh, there's, I, there's very little studies done on that actually, PJ. If you're both unvaccinated and one has the virus and one doesn't, well, then it's about a fifty percent transmission rate. I got you. Rate. I got you. Sorry, I got you. But it's, it's, it's been reduced anyway. We just don't know the numbers. All right. Yes, I, just, exactly. I just wanted to break it down into simple terms like yeah. that. Now, as we go through the European Championships, the, the Euros, yeah, yeah. we're seeing pictures every night of stadiums. Uh, with like Denmark had twenty something thousand people at a match last night, and constantly on social media we get told Ireland is a laughing stock because Denmark have twenty five thousand and we have a hundred people. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, well, the analogy with regard to us being last in Europe to uh, open up society is actually true. Um, we are practically last to open up and everything. Remember, we had the longest lockdown. You know, I mean, Denmark, just to give you an example, PJ, um, dropped the masks on the 14th of June. So you've seen at the Euros uh, there, there's, uh, there's nobody with masks. Um, uh, and their incident rate is quite similar uh, to ours. And I think as I understand that their vaccination rate is, is close to, but not the same as ours. Um, so... We're very, we're, look, we have become almost paralysed by this awful phrase of abundance of caution. You know, if you're vaccinated and you're mixing with other vaccinated people, you know, the, the, we know from the data I've just given you, you're very largely protected from symptomatic disease, particularly, and also yeah. from passing on the infection. So from that perspective, you know, we're treating vaccinated people more or less the same as unvaccinated people at the moment in this country. And, and it's really, so that, you know... I, I, that's immunologically speaking, that doesn't make sense. There has to be a vaccine dividend. Um, and the other thing we're seeing in this country is, of course, for the rather probably the first time, this partition of access to, to medicines based on age. And OK, that made very good sense while we have the, 50, the 40s, 50s, 60s and so on um, to be vaccinated. But we have that group very largely protected. The vulnerable are done. The group sevens have largely been done. So therefore, who's going to end up in hospital have been vaccinated if they want a vaccine? Right, And, you know, I, I think at this stage, so that if you look at the death rate or the hospitalisation rates, which you mentioned at the outset, there, the hospitalisation rates between the 20s and 30s isn't all that different. So, and you're, you know, you're, you're, the frequency of uh, people dying isn't that different between the 20s and the 30s. It's quite small, but it's not that different. Yeah. So I can't see any logical reason for not opening up the portal to everybody under 40. This step-by-step 39, 8, 7, 6, and so on. Um, I, I really don't understand it immunologically at this stage. Like, NIAC have been very quiet uh, on, on a couple of things. One is this, you know, breaking the age basis for, for vaccination. And the second is perhaps maybe uh, catching up with the 60 to 69 who are waiting on their second AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, we have the clinical trial data which shows that heterologous or mixed vaccine challenges actually work very well. Yeah. Um, and that, you know... They still seem to be setting their face against that, though, for some uh, reason. Yeah, and it perplexes me from an immunological reason, a perspective. I don't understand why. And even from a logistical perspective, you know we're getting over 300,000 vaccines last week, this week and next week. That's yeah. over a million vaccines. I'm not quite sure how many are in the 60 to 69 age group waiting vaccines, but they could be cleared off in a matter of days. Yeah. Now... Something that they did in the UK uh, to try to rescue the situation where they were afraid that 
the Delta variant would get ahead of the vaccination program was, if I'm correct, and I, I, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, they now, anyone over the age of 18 who wants a vaccine now can just apply to the NHS and get one. That's correct. Should yes. we be doing that here, Liam? Absolutely. I, I've been saying it for a long time. I've been saying this since February and March. We should have opened up the vaccine portal to those young enough, 16 for Pfizer, 18 for Moderna, up to 35 at that point in the, in, in the pandemic in March and April, and now particularly as well. Because that's what the infections are kind of still run. You know, are, um, are, you know we saw the, um, was it announcement by Public Health Ireland, um, uh, if you're at a party in a house in Athlone, that's right. Um, you know, come and get tested. I mean, when you consider, okay, that is a world away from me. You might remember at the beginning, man in the east, woman in the south, um, uh, you know, got COVID. That's I mean, right. we have come so far. I mean, when you think of it, how ridiculous it sounds at the beginning. Um, uh, we have eventually come around to a point where we, you know, if you're at a party in that loan in a house, in a, you know, come get tested. They gave anything uh, short of the air code, basically. Per, per, absolutely. But <laughs> I, mean, did, yeah. I mean, PJ, you know, if people turn up for testing, no matter where it is, you know, without symptoms, with symptoms, whatever, they should be all offered and and given a free test without any questions where our judgment as to where you got it from or you might have been in contact with somebody and the same with vaccinations let them dial up ring up ppsn number whatever you need um, and just get your vaccines i mean like there's a couple of ways out of this one is keep us in in this kind of permanent permanent stasis of kind of social restriction um you know and we've done that for so long now um, and we've seen that people are kind of you know meeting up in groups and we haven't had the explosion we just haven't had the explosion in numbers um even with the Delta uh, the variant, you know, the Delta variant. Um, mm. So I think a targeted approach of vaccinations and opening up the portal, mm. we'll see the numbers come down even further. I don't know what Philip Nolan and his colleagues have done with regard to the modelling, if that happens. See, so I, I, I suppose the problem is our supply. We, we don't really have enough to tackle it as fast as we'd like well, to. But then you do it on the first come, first served. You know what I mean? So if you open up the portal completely, um, right. open it up on a first come, first served basis, so therefore... Um, you know, you will capture some of the younger age group who are circulating widely at the moment. And, right. and from, from the little data that we can get because of the hack, um, you know, most of the infections are in, their, in the 20s at this stage. Yeah, they are a huge number. Alive. I was looking, both the, both the average and the median now is yeah. in the mid-high 20s. And when no, both no. the average and the median are at the same number, you know exactly where your cases are, exactly. don't you? You're, you're, you're dead right there. And, but, like, I mean, we won't be hitting that group until the air... I mean, uh, there was some confusion. Um, I think uh, Colm Henry was on the radio and RT there saying that it could be October, November. And very quickly on the same day, a couple of hours later, we had that pullback to, oh, no, they'll be getting their vaccines in, in, in maybe August, September time. So, you know, I mean... There's, there's quite a bit of um, yeah. uh, mixed messaging going on. But, but don't we kind of have to? Don't we have to hold back? Like for someone who's had their first dose, don't we have to hold back a second dose for them so they can get it yes, on time? Oh no. Yes, we do, PJ. But also remember, those in that age group who've had an infection, one shot of the vaccine will probably make them bulletproof from further infection. Do you know what I mean? Because they have that pre-existing immunity from having cleared the infection. Gotcha. Um, and then, the, you know, then you, what you're effectively doing is giving them a booster shot okay. um, with the Pfizer vaccine. And the other thing, too, is by protecting that group, there's going to be a proportion of those individuals who are going to end up with long COVID. And we don't want anybody getting that. Yes, um, yes. And look, I know we can all not you know, pick up COVID by strictly adhering to the public health measures. The unvaccinated group I'm talking about is a complete world difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated at this stage. Mm. Um, and the unvaccinated, they're mixing. They're not. So look, 
a public health measure which would help get our numbers down further, reduce the possibility of long COVID and further reduce the possibility of that group who rarely end up hospital, you know, further reduce it again by opening up the vaccine portal to those under 40. I know there might be some logistical considerations and some of the 30-year-olds will say, well, if actually a 25-year-old gets it before I get it, well, then I'm going to be that little bit, um, we'll say, slower getting my vaccine. If, if we're, you know, if we protect the group that are most getting most of the infections, we are all more protected. Okay, okay. Uh, I know you've got uh, you, you've got a commitment shortly, so I won't keep you too long. More. Where do you stand, Professor Fanning, on rapid testing? I, I'm trying to use the word rapid more than antigen because <laughs> I know there's more than one, as Kingston Mills explained to me last week. Correct. But there are there, there are several. We're we're not using it like we didn't use it at the music event in the Ivy Gardens. We're not using it for matches. We don't seem to be using it in places where they're using it across Europe. We don't. Well, this this is one of the I suppose the the key features that differentiates us from Europe is we haven't embraced antigen testing. You know, and, you know, there are some antigen tests that are extremely good with respect to their matching for PCR when people are infectious. And it's all about when people are infectious. Because as you probably know at this stage, PJ, you know, you can still be positive by PCR for the virus several weeks after you've had the virus, but you won't be infectious. So the key thing is, is using ancillary testing, we call it, be it antigen testing um, or any of the other tests, lamp testing or whatever, um, to pick up those individuals who are infectious. Um, you know, we really don't, from a, from a public health perspective, they want to know the numbers. But really, if you're in a room with somebody, really at the bottom, you want to know are they infectious going into that room? You're vaccinated, PJ. So that, may, that you know that 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 changes things. But for people who are unvaccinated, or a few the wedding or a funeral. Um, you know, uh, out of an abundance of caution, mm. you say, well, look, well, we'll, we'll try using one of the... Ant- now, of course, you can use the test incorrectly, but if you use it incorrectly, you do it again. You know, I mean, like, yes. you know... Properly administered, I would suspect, rather than the one you buy down in Lidl and do yourself over your well, cornflakes. You, well, I wouldn't you be... know, they have, they have a place too, PJ. Do you know, I mean, some of, some of the, the um, ones that are administered by a nasopharyngeal swab, that one that feels like it's going up way up into your head, you know, they have a sensitivity of about 100% at a very... When, when you've lost and lost a virus, um, and when you've smaller amounts of virus, they're, they're close to the 90%. So these are very good figures. They're an adjunct, they're a okay. help, they're not everything. And if you have a non-reactive... They're a tool it, in the toolbox. Yeah, exactly. Are you sympathetic to our aviation sector with regard to this? I am. I think they've, they've, they have, they've got... We all appreciate that they've gone through hell and back again um, with regards to closure. And, uh, and like, like, like the rest of Europe seems to be flying around um, with using antigen testing. I think there's one there called Pelican now as well that can give you results in two minutes. Now, it is professionally administered, but that's the kind of time frame that you can use at an airport um, if you have enough of them, look, this is about logistics and numbers. Mm. And um, I think uh, with the right support of PCR testing, the green certificate and those that are vaccinated, like those that are vaccinated, you know, should be allowed travel freely at this stage. Do you know what I mean? Because um, even if they pick it up, as I said, their viral load is going to be much lower. Sure, there'll be the odd person who's vaccinated who'll end up kind of. Um, but this is a numbers game and a risk assessment. Everybody needs to do their own risk assessment for their vaccination status or their unvaccinated status. Okay. And, and map it out that, and that way. And nobody wants to get this infection and nobody wants to pass it on. And um, I think the more supportive and positive language we can use, taking you know, cognizance of the fact that this is an infection that can cause nasty consequences. All right. This, individuals. Great to speak with you again um, this morning. That's Professor Liam Fanning, Professor of Immunovirology at UCC. Thank you, Liam, uh, speaking with us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 event. The amount of positivity in there.
if you're vaccinated, double vaccinated, your chances of getting this thing are vastly reduced. Your chances of passing it on are reduced. Gabriel Scali, I know, has been saying in an interview this morning, Professor Scali, who's also been on the programme with me quite frequently, that yes, you can still die from COVID after you're vaccinated. But the chances of it happening are really small. Really, really small. As for testing, yes, we should be doing rapid testing. Properly administered rapid testing. Let's go back to what they said about this at the Transport Committee last week. Dr. Ronan Glynn, the Deputy uh, Chief Medical Officer, was asked about why they're so reticent with regard to using rapid testing like our friends across Europe. Rather than taking our word for it, look at what the Infectious Diseases Society of America has said in the last few weeks about this. And it's very simple. It's one line. It simply says, for asymptomatic individuals at risk for exposure to SARS-CoV-2, a rapid PCR or laboratory-based test should be used rather than a single rapid antigen test. That's the current position of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. It's backed up by the Royal Statistical Society's report in the UK. Uh, it's backed up by ECDC, by WHO. So it's not just us saying it. Ultimately, if we move away from speaking about the evidence, it's opinion over fact. And so I think at all times we have to be very careful that as we as we go through this, that we have to be led by what the evidence is telling us as opposed to what we want to be true. Okay, and just before I go to the break there, lads, a quick email that we got in from Anne. And I think Liam Fanning touched on it briefly, the idea that those people who are fully vaccinated are still not getting the benefit of it. Still not getting the benefit of it. And Anne raised this in her email. It beggars belief to hear and see the government hasn't a plan to contain this delta at all. Half vaccinated and non-vaccinated are in the majority. So what game are we playing? I wonder how much stock of vaccine is in Ireland right now. Why are we ignoring Tony Houlihan? We surely can't afford to close down again. Well, I don't think we're heading there. I don't think we're heading there. But she says, re-indoor indoor dining in July. Couldn't it be for vaccinated people for a start? As with social distancing, the numbers can't be crowded indoors again. It's time that one can dine indoors with some space if you're vaccinated and outdoors if you're not vaccinated. There isn't much social distancing outdoors. There's an interesting one. So Anne is making a suggestion, if I'm reading her email correctly. i pop this out there for what it's worth. So they're talking about opening indoor dining on the 5th of July and that is still going ahead. How about we only offer indoor dining at the start to those who can show they've been vaccinated so that you bring your card with you to get you into an indoor restaurant. That Look, is that what she's saying? How would that work? Imagine going up to the pub and saying, I'd like a drink inside, please. Oh, no, we're only outside. Actually, I'm vaccinated. I'll have a drink at the bar, please. Would that work? 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. I think we started with at the top of the show that around 25,000 people in Cork are presently driving on a learner permit only. And nationally, 1,400 people have been driving with only a learner permit for over 26 years. Now, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, James O'Connor... 
Finn Faulty Lee for Cork East, just under 25,000 people on a learner, a learner permit, James. Technically, they can't drive without someone qualified, qualified with them in the car. So we need to clear that backlog. Good morning. Good morning, TJ, and thank you for having me. You know, you're spot on in terms of the backlog. It is a huge issue, and as we do know, that the uh, RSA has the capacity to conduct 25,000 driver tests uh, this month. There's going to be a new online theory test service that's also opened as well. That's expected that 4,000 of those uh, will be carried out during the current month of June, and thankfully a further 6,000 will be carried out in July. So the capacity for uh, expanded uh, theory tests has now... I suppose, been ramped up. And originally during COVID-19, I think there was a, a capacity for only 15,000 mm. per month. So this is good news. It's good how, long is, how long is acceptable to be waiting for your actual test where you actually sit in the car from the day you apply? The actual test, I think my, my own uh, experience is probably a good one because I, I recently uh, became, a, a, I suppose, a full driver in terms of not no longer being a driver. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I think the process involved in that should take people no longer than maybe a year, if I was to be fair, maybe a year and a half. But I think it was unacceptable to hear the point that you were making there earlier on, that there is a significant portion of drivers out there who've been on learner drive or learner permits for an extremely long period of time. That's something that we need to tackle. It's not no, right sorry, a year. So let's imagine I'm on a learner permit today, right? Yeah. And I want to get a driving test. How long should it take me from application to test? From the application to test, I, my, my own read is that an acceptable period of time is probably about six to eight weeks. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was hoping you weren't saying we should be waiting a year, six to eight, six to eight weeks. And you're saying that we will clear that. Have we enough testers to clear the backlog? Are they working seven days a week? Are they working more than nine to five? So as it stands, my, my understanding is that, there's, that, that the RSA had delivered over 52,000 driving tests during COVID-19. So what's happening now to bring up the capacity page and its importance is that the RSA have offered test booking to over 2,500 candidates in terms of the essential workers throughout the pandemic, right. but also in terms of ramping up capacity. There's going to be additional testers that are actually being hired towards the end of this month, which is good news. In addition, uh, I think that they're, they're seeking an additional 40 testers. Uh, so the capacity is being increased from 100 testers to approximately 220 by the time that these hires are finished over the next couple okay. of months. Okay. So that's good news. What about the 1,400 people driving around for a quarter of a century on a learner permit? Like, that's a liability. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. How and are they getting away with it then? I, I think that from a policing point of view, Gardaí will have to probably get stricter for those that are out uh, long-term on learner's permits. Now, it's very, very important to differentiate here, and I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to people or younger drivers out there who've just got their licence, and there's a lot of challenges for them to get around and... You know, there was a huge cultural change as well as a legislation change in the last 10 years around people who were, who were driving in learners' permits. Many people listening today, PJ, uh, that per- perhaps, you know, learned how to drive in the, at the start of the last decade were familiar that, you know, driving unaccompanied on a learners' permit was very, very common. Many of the insurance companies even insured drivers in those situations. I know that my own did. And that all changed in the middle of the last decade, around 2014 up to 2016. There was legislation changes brought in, policing methods were improved. The car can be seized. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at that, we have to address it. But, you know, let's also set the overall question. You know, when you are uh, 17 and you were able to apply to get your theory test, and uh, you, you can go out and drive the car on the road, although you have to be accompanied, having sat absolutely no tests, 
So you have to ask yourself, is, is the current system fit for, 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 for purpose? Because these changes were brought in, but I don't think we ever really addressed the overall issues. And I think it's now perhaps time we should do it. Why, okay. do, why shouldn't we allow perhaps uh, children when they're 16 to learn how to drive? Because, you know, they can drive tractors and a learner's permit unaccompanied. And I think we should be allowing mm. children in school that's, in their later years with our senior cycle. That, that, that's a discussion in, in itself. Briefly, James, because I know you're headed off to the Transport Committee. The CEO of Erlingus is coming in. Very worrying times, particularly at Cork. Exactly. We're, we're expect, expecting to see uh, the CEO of Erlingus, Lynn Ibleton, today. She was, she was newly appointed. She's an enormous job in front of her. But from my own perspective, as the only Cork TD that sits in the Transport Committee, We'll be watching quite closely today in terms of her opening statement, which is just beginning now um, okay. around the future. Of well, I'll let you go to hear that, but what question do you have in your mind for her if you have one? My personal question to her is about their commitment to operating Aer Lingus flights in and out of Cork Airport. We all know this. Uh, Ryanair are quite prominent in Cork, but in terms of Aer Lingus, it's critically important that they would retain major operations in Cork, unlike what they have done in Shannon, which was extremely worrying. Okay, we'll see where that goes. Thank you very much for your time, James O'Connor, Cork East, Fianna Fáil TD, and headed off now to sit on the Transport Committee. Let me go straight away to Professor Seamus O'Reilly, oncologist. Change of tack, I know, uh, in in mid-flow, bear with me for a second, because Professor O'Reilly, his time is limited, but he is one of Cork's best-known oncologists, a consultant oncologist for the last 20 years here in Cork and has now been appointed to the Breast International Group's Executive Board, the BIG. Professor O'Reilly, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for interviewing me. Uh, Delighted to have you. Tell me, what is BIG, Seamus? So BIG is the Breast International Group. It was established in 1999 in Brussels. And it's an umbrella group for, uh, for groups involved in, in breast cancer trials, clinical trials globally. So that's over 50 groups in, on six continents. And what effectively does it do? So it, it, it does uh, several things. It, it integrates uh, different trial groups so that they can all combine to answer the same question. So some of our questions in medicine require collaboration on a, on a global scale in terms of getting adequate patient numbers to answer the important clinical questions. Um, and, and some of them also, in, in, we know that collaboration is the engine of change and that by groups combining together, the results can be more relevant they, on a global basis. They can also uh, be more precise in terms of changing practice for, for patients with cancer. Mm. And the advantage for you and for Cork and for Ireland of being on this board, what are they? So... Uh, at the present time, there are women in communities throughout Ireland who are cured because of their involvement in in big trials, which we've been doing in Ireland for 20 years, uh, or because of the, the results of big trials elsewhere. If, even if they weren't participating on the trial, their care is now defined by those big trials. So okay. breast cancer survival has improved dramatically in the last 20 years, partly as a result of these trials. Right. Um, so by being involved in this organisation, it, it, it will mean greater access for women with breast ca- and men with breast cancer in Ireland right. to these newer developments access, and access a voice to, at the table when these trials are being developed. Access, as it were, to the cutting edge of global expertise, which is, which is a great thing. Just another question, Seamus, before I let you go. Um, I think we may have raised this a number of times over the past 15 months, but in, in your own personal view, are, are we facing 
uh, a whole new cancer crisis post-COVID? I think there's, there's worldwide agreement that that's, that that's an issue. Our, our cancer care is about order and, and timeliness and logic, and COVID has disrupted all of that at every facet, at prevention in our schools to end-of-life care. The main concern is delayed diagnosis of people, that there are people out there with cancer who, who would normally have been picked up in our screening programs or who are concerned about coming for medical attention because they're afraid of getting COVID in the, in the hospital. So, they, 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 yes, the, the, that is a major concern. And, and I guess the other concern about it is, is, is that we were already starting on the back foot before the yeah. pandemic. It's like there were 600,000 people waiting to see a consultant. Uh, the deputy medical chief medical officer feels a million people would be waiting. We've we've a shortage of of nursing and and consultant staff in order to to deal with that. How, how do we fix that? Because that's not a new problem. That's not a that's not a post COVID problem. That's always been there. No, I, I think well, I, I, in, so I think we need to take innovation is accelerated by a crisis. So in England, the Royal College of Surgeons have have looked at this thing called a, a new deal based on the FDR. Um, uh, uh, shout out and plan at, uh, during the Great Rece- after the after the Wall Street crash and during the Great Recession. So this new deal that they're talking about in the Royal College looks at at, at mobilising all of the workforce that they want to work part time, people who want to work full time, people who are newly retired, and looking at it in a different way so that they can galvanise all of the resources that they yeah. have to deal with this backlog. And and I think in Ireland a similar kind of visionary disruptive positive disruptive change mindset is needed at the, at the moment to look at you know we have enormous human capital are we using it adequately yeah. are we treasuring it and we, we, we need, need to, all that human capital now shake the system by the scruff of the neck I, I know you're headed to a clinic so one last brief question I think the tarnished uh, and of course Leo Bradker a doctor himself has been saying we need to increase the health budget would you agree I, I think so but I think we also need to look at, at recruitment and retention uh, we have wonderful, uh, you know, in the next, in the coming months, our wonderful junior doctors will be leaving, will, will be leaving this jurisdiction for better terms and conditions elsewhere. I, I think that money is, is, is helpful and is needed. There's no question about that. But we also need to look at how people are treated when they're in the service, not just, I mean, patients' care obviously is, is pivotal, but also our doctors, our, our nurses. I, 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 as you say, I've been here for two decades. I've, I've been through two nurses' strikes um, and we are short a half a million nurses in, 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 in Europe. Uh, and many of the nurses that I work with are from, are from non-EU countries. They, they, how we look after our healthcare resource is also important as well. It's not just about money, but it's also about how people are treated in the system. All right. People. All right. I appreciate that and appreciate your time, Professor Seamus O'Reilly, consultant medical oncologist here in Corkett, now appointed to the board of the Breast International Group, which means that his patients and those he works with and other cancer uh, people on their cancer journey through Cork will have access through Seamus, to the global leading edge of expertise. That can only be a good thing. Something about the recruitment, and I, I just throw this out there for what it's worth. You may or may not know this, right? And I've asked the question for a long time, why does this happen? And no one can seem to answer me this. So let us imagine, right? Let us imagine that I am a consultant, right? Let's imagine I have more than three functioning brain cells, and let's imagine that I am a consultant, Okay. And I announced today is the 22nd of June 
and I announce to my employers that I will be leaving on the 31st of December. I would give that kind of notice. So I would give six months notice. I'm a consultant. I'm moving on. I'm retiring. I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'll be gone on the 31st of December. When do you think they advertise my job? Do you ever wonder when would they advertise my job? So I announce today, I write to them today, I send them a letter and I say, dear sir, whatever, I will be, I'm formally handing in my notice and I will be leaving on the 31st of December 2021. When will they advertise my job? I'll tell you next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. They will start to advertise your job. They will publish the advert for your job on the 2nd of January. I kid you not. You can't advertise a job while someone is in it. Read something in The Independent the last couple of days and I said, hang on a second, that's not new. That's not new. It said hairdressers are setting up rent-a-chair business rather than taking on full-time staff. This came from the chief executive of ISMI, the small business group. Neil MacDonald was saying that there's a reluctance among some employers to hire full-time workers. But he was saying, he was talking to the Joint Committee on Enterprise Trade and Employment, but he was saying that a lot of hairdressers now are renting out the chairs to individual stylists. Now, I could have sworn that this didn't start today or yesterday and that 20 years ago I used to go to someone who's cut my hair and she was renting the chair. Um, and it seems to be something that's been going on for years. David Babington from Ugly Duckling Gonorale. Hey, David, how are you? Hi, good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> good to chat with you, my friend. Come here, am I wrong or right or am I imagining things? Renting out of chairs has always been a thing in the industry. Absolutely. That's been going on forever and ever and ever. I did that myself many, many years ago in between the transition before I opened my own salon. And the salons that myself and my husband have had for the last couple of years, we've rented out seats to um, um, people also. So, no, you're And how does it work? Right. They, they guarantee you a certain fee, is it per day or per week, and the rest is their own? Yeah, some people, you know, there's different rules and regulations. So, some people will charge a daily fee, or other people will charge for you to just rent out the seats, say, kind of five days a week. And that's the set wage and stuff like that. You're pretty much your, your own boss. You can come and go when you please. Um, you look after as many clients you can during the day, but you're just allowed to use one seat, for example. You can't have two clients in at the one time taking up two seats, so it's just the rule is one. Which is um, why you say you're booked out for the day because every slot in that chair is gone and you can't take on anybody else. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's, it's a fantastic way, too, if you are thinking of, um, you know, becoming your own, your own son owner eventually. It's a great way to start. Um, because you do become kind of independent, you do become your own boss, but you don't have all the crazy overheads, you don't have to pay for staff, you don't have, um, you you know, you pay your own fee for the seat, but you don't have rents and rates and et cetera, et cetera. So you can be quite independent to the, mm. to the, the salon that you uh, register for. Is it getting more popular again because of the whole COVID thing? Definitely. I definitely think it is something that will become popular. I just think people are... You know, the last time I I would have spoken to you was, was last year when I was pretty much crying on air. Oh, you we were broken hearted, you poor closing, devil. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, the closing of the salon in McCurtain Street. And, you know, um, so yeah, I think people are definitely much more nervous 
to open up a salon at the moment because everything is still, yes, we are moving on like leaps and bounds, but, um, you know, there's still slight uncertainty there. So I do think it's definitely becoming more popular. It gives people, like I said, the opportunity to be your own boss without the scary, this is my own salon. I can kind of just walk at the end of the day and mm. someone else has to worry about the electricity bills, so to speak. Mm. Are the so, Barnets yeah. of Donnerail, are they busy? <sighs> Are we busy in Donnerail, yeah. is it? Yeah, like like the last, like I said, the last time I spoke to you, it was just a very crazy time. It was before the lockdown, before Christmas, and we had that six weeks to make the decision to close our salon in, in Cork, which, you know, we've been there for years and years. And also, of losing part of your kind of identity, you know, like I used to get so excited to going up to Cork and getting dressed up and putting on the show, and then boom, all of a sudden, that's kind of taken from you with COVID, and we had a very short space of time to... Um, find premises in Donnerail and renovate that and um, we did it happen so fast with six weeks to be open for Christmas and the um, response has been incredible I'm delighted for you we really thought that it would be you know we, we picked a smaller premises we thought it would be kind of myself and PJ you know tipping away maybe one staff here we are a month later and we've had to hire four people ah that's four fantastic people. David that's, that's brilliant news I'm delighted for you these four girls had been out of work for a while, not due to COVID, but for personal reasons. So we didn't take them from another employment. Sure. They needed to get back into work. And um, yeah, like there's like nearly a six week waiting list now at the moment. That's brilliant. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to leave it there because I'd, I'd love to talk to you some more, but that's, I, I'm out of time. That's brilliant news. Delighted for you, David Babington, the material boy, of course, um, ugly duckling in, in Donnerail. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. My Facebook memories are coming up every day this week with pictures taken at gigs places like the Irish Independent Park and places like the Marquee and I've got a, a memory thrown up the other night of Rod Stewart at Parky Creeve. Great, great musical memories and of course we're, we're having none of that this summer. But last year we found a way around it and this year we found a way around it as well. It's Cork's 96 Mems exclusive online station the Back Garden Festival and it's back. The biggest hits from your favourite festival stars all the people you'd love to be going to see all mixed down all ready for you on the app. It's with Harvey Norman and JBL your specialist in sound this summer it's on the app now or you can go to 96fm.ie the Back Garden Festival brought to you by Cork's 96 FM. 1850 There's a whole bunch of comments held over on vaccines and on Liam Fanning and on what he was saying and on L drivers and people being around for years with uh, learner permits. I'll get to all of those. It's just a busy morning on all of our various platforms. But speaking of platforms, you don't have to search too far, particularly on the cesspit that Twitter can sometimes be to find very nasty content, very nasty anti-immigrant content. I'm not going to name any names. I wouldn't give their flame the oxygen that it wants, but some very nasty content 
on particularly Twitter. Twitter can be a foul cesspit for this kind of stuff at times. But it's great when someone reminds you of a positive story of immigration. A positive story, so positive in fact, that it gives us a brand name and a much loved brand name. Mr. Bells. Mr. Bells, yeah, Mr. Bells. A much loved Cork brand name. Uh, Lorraine Dempsey. Lorraine, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. You know Mr. Bell very well. I do, because before I came Lorraine Dempsey, my name was Lorraine Belmersdoub. So uh, a very unique Cork name, and I think a unique name in Ireland. There's only a couple of Belmersdoubs, and indeed we had a new one arrive into the family only last week. Belmersdoub, is it? Belmersdoub. Belmersdoub. I never knew that Mr. Bell was short Mr. Bell Mazdoub. Tell me more. How well do you know him? Well, he was my dad. Uh, he arrived over to Cork in the late 60s and um, I was the, the firstborn of the Bell Mazdoub tribe. And you can imagine every conversation I had where somebody asked my name, whether it was, you know, arriving up to the bank teller or signing any document, a conversation ensued. Where did that come from? And usually I'd say Kerry, but then we get into the real conversation <laughs> about it. So, you know, it was a really interesting childhood. And I suppose, look, you know, while, while this story kind of blew up last week, was just in the context of somebody talking about Leo Radker and his name and the fact that he was uh, part Indian and Indian should be driving a bus and that's all they were good for. And then yeah. somebody else interjected to say, oh, no, they're only good for serving in an Indian restaurant. Now, this just absolutely inflamed me, and not for the first time. Uh, these individuals, which don't bother, uh, you know, don't go without naming. Um, I think about two years ago, uh, one of these individuals walked into an ethnic food shop in Roscommon and right. uh, politely asked uh, a, a, an older gentleman who was working in there a few different questions, and he was being most pleasant, as, as most business owners would be in terms of customer service. And then this individual who was Irish started to ask very pointed questions about the food mm -hmm. and then got on about halal and they wanted sausages and etc and you know that gentleman was the identical to my dad you know working in an ethnic food shop been in Ireland for decades being extremely nice to the customer and whether he was unaware of that customer taking advantage and videoing him with a view to putting this out on kind of very racist channels and yeah. um, I was bawling at the time because all I could think yeah, of my I, dad I, I remember that video I was furious myself watching it, but we do not want to give those people any more spotlight than they already crave. Come, come back to your dad though, because where did Mr. Bell's Emporium come from? So, look, my dad came over to Ireland and he was already into food. He had run away from Morocco to France because uh, his dad wanted him to be an accountant and he had other ideas. And that's where he met my mother, who's, who's from Cork, Kay. And um, they, he came over here in the late 60s to stay with my grandparents for a year on an exchange of sorts in so far as they were already in love. And uh, it was thought best that maybe the, the parents might acclimatise to having a young Arab Muslim <laughs> to live with them for a while and fall in love with him like everybody else in the family did. Um, and he stayed here. They got married in 72, stayed here. And in that time, he already kind of got into the catering business. He started off and I think I had that in my tweet 
street selling sandwiches off the back of a Honda 50. And the lovely thing about that Twitter exchange last week was indeed um, a man, Morris, got in touch who said, you know, he knew my dad 45 years ago. He he worked with them, indeed, had a few rides on that very Honda 50 and worked in the restaurant in Cork Airport with him and then on to Cork Catering Services, which my dad set up in the early 70s. So he absolutely loved food. Um, I suppose he got very involved in kind of mass catering at the time and would have been involved in like the summer shows. So anybody involved in agriculture would have remembered the massive summer shows mm. um, that were held every year and concerts in Parque Cueve. He yeah. ran the restaurant in Musgraves and my childhood upbringing was really running around Musgraves after school, you know, staff giving me extra <laughs> ch- Cadbury's chocolate and the chocolate aisle, any broken boxes. And, um, you know, that, that was childcare back then, PJ, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, How did the... Mr. Bell's Cork come about though? The, 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 um... Sure, so in the late 80s, my dad already had a stall in the um, the English market going way back into the late 70s and it was a Moroccan boutique that had kind of poofs and uh, you know, you could buy leather wallets and all sorts of goods from Morocco and henna was really popular for ladies actually buying raw henna powder back then and he decided he actually wanted to kind of get into, uh, outside of the mass catering, he already had a restaurant restaurant at that time, the, the ranch house, which was really catering for the mm. Irish taste buds. But he decided to get into kind of um, more exotic food. So he started making um, ready-to-go packets of curry and uh, moussaka. Sure, the Irish had no idea what moussaka was. And these were sold frozen out of a cold counter. And then he went over to the UK and he brought over um, little tubs of curry powder and bay leaves and all sorts of spices and things that um, we had never you know, heard of, let mm. alone tasted. And as the the kind of foreign population of Cork started to increase, they were coming to him saying, Mr. Dries, you know, can you, or Mr. Bell for short as well, you know, can you find me this? And then he'd go off to the UK and he'd find things for Chinese people, Indian people, um, Pakistanis, wherever they were coming from, they were coming to him with either a name or a label right. of a product and he was bringing it back for them. And that's how the business, Mr. Bell's kind of grew. So he set up a stall in the English market and then it grew to two. And then the restaurants were kind of knocking on his door as well for, uh, you know, the Irish taste buds and people were travelling could have uh, moved on. So then he opened up the, his own cash and carry and it's still out there now in Toker. Um, you know, they've, they've opened a shop in the cash and carry because there were so many individuals knocking on the cash and carry's door as well. So they want to cater for them locally. Yeah. And it just grew legs after that. You know, he went from driving over to the UK in a van himself to then obviously having to get container load shipped. And now, you know, you can get everything from Thai, Indian, Mexican, wherever in the world you want something, more than likely they'll probably have the product there. Yeah. He, therefore, Lorraine, played a massive role in the huge variety of food that we can get now in Cork. Absolutely. Like I remember, I used to work in the market as a student every Saturday and, you know, get my money and go out on a Saturday night and blow it all. But what I loved was the variety of people who were coming into the shop from all over the world. But actually, the majority of the customers were and still are Irish. Um, I suppose we were demanding more. We were seeing more on television and all these traveling programs. We were traveling beyond the likes of Spain, um, you know, to more exotic places and with, with kind of, I suppose, more immigration and people coming into Cork you know people's taste buds were changing and yeah. uh, he just he just catered for that kind of diversity. People were uh, travelling as well weren't they Lorraine and they were discovering 
the food of the world, if you want. When they were going to the other parts of the world, they were discovering the food of the world and then to discover that this man could could provide it for them in their own city. Yeah, like I remember, you know, particularly um, a lot of Chinese women coming in who had very little English at the time and would literally have handed a label off of a tin, no English on the label, and would just say, you know, can your dad get this? And sure enough, the next time he'd come back from a trip from the UK and distributors, he, not knowing what this said on it, he'd hand it in and uh, bring back a caseload, and if they liked it... And so hold on, more he'd, go over, he'd go over with a label, he'd no idea what it said, he'd just hand it in somewhere... Oh, yeah, and invariably, PJ, because he was a great cook and loved experimenting, he'd take a tin or two home, crack it open, and then see what he could do with it. So I suppose we had just one of the most wonderful, I suppose, um, childhoods in terms of what we were exposed to by food. And indeed, look, I moved out of Cork quite a long time ago, and every time my dad came up to help look after the grandkids, he came up with like a five-litre drum of maybe a Thai curry that he'd prepared already, another five-litre container of a pre-cooked stir-fry, and he'd have us in food for like at least a week. You know, he was amazing Fabulous. like that. Fabulous. And he loved cooking for people. And, and he'd really soft spot actually for the Malaysian community as well, particularly students in UCC, mm. who would share their cooking knowledge and invite him for dinner. And their and food so is beautiful. Did, Malaysian food oh, is gorgeous. Absolutely. Gorgeous. And I think he learned, and as well as that, he liked to teach. So he was out in the, I, I, the CIT, is it, the Regional Technical College? Yeah. He was out there. MTU, and, they call know, it now. Yeah, doing cooking demonstrations for the students there in the catering courses um, you know he do uh, you know share his knowledge with chefs even the butchers in the market Brilliant. when it came to the likes of you know spice beef at Christmas that's where they got their mix for it you know yeah. for their Irish spice beef Such a con- well listen if you're contributing to spice beef you are you are cork you're as cork as we are Lorraine lovely talking about him and uh, Mr Bell you never realised I've talked to Lorraine many, many times over the years. That's Lorraine Dempsey, and of course she's uh, the interim CEO of Inclusion Ireland. And we've spoken to Lorraine many times on the show. Thank you, Lorraine. We'll talk again. Uh, Thank you very much. But her dad was Mr. Bell of the famous Mr. Bell's Emporium. See, that's what immigration is all about. That's the kind of thing that people bring to a city that we don't even realise the history behind it. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. So, what's it like? This is Pride Month. The month of June is Pride Month. And we're focusing on it uh, with a number of different features on the Opinion Line. Do you ever ask yourself the question, what's it like to be a priest and to be gay? That's just part of the story of Father Donald Godfrey. He realised that he was gay while he was studying here in Cork. He lives in San Francisco now, and he's one of a number of LGBTQ plus diaspora who are featuring in a landmark exhibition in Dublin, in the Epic Museum. Uh, We'll hear more about that exhibition later on. But uh, as part of our coverage of Pride Month, I've been catching up uh, with... Donald, who's based in the US. Father Donald, you have a strong Cork connection, and I want to explore that first. You're not a Corkonian, but you're... No, I didn't grow up in Cork. I know you have... You have to grow up in Cork to be a real Corkonian. But my family moved to Cork uh, when I was in my teens, and I'm proud graduate of UCC School of Law. And uh, when I was at uh, the... 
at UCC, I was very involved in the Philosoph Society uh, there, and I have many friends. I stay in touch. Uh, my parents have both died now, but I'm still in touch with dear friends like Carl Kerrigan and Paul Colton, the Bishop of Cork, the Anglican Bishop, and others. You have an interesting story. It was when you were in UCC studying law, you began to realize that you were gay. Yes. It wasn't something I was looking for. It wasn't something I wanted for myself. Uh, and I, some level, I thought I became kind of angry with the world and with God at that, as it dawned on me because I thought somehow God was putting a curse on me of some kind that I could never have a happy or be a fulfilled human being. And I, that, that clashed with the God I'd been introduced to, uh, a God of love who wanted the best for me, wanted a fully human life for me. Mm. So that, there was a lot of, I suppose nowadays we call it cognitive dissonance in that. Had you a priestly life in mind at that point? I, it was something I had considered and was considering, but it, I, I hadn't, it wasn't something I was pursuing directly at that time. Um, I, the interesting thing was, I mean, I had a pretty happy, my, my family's very loving. I don't, they didn't, um, I didn't have a, I'm blessed. I didn't have a traumatic childhood in many ways. In many ways, perhaps my, my uh, denial, which would be so much more difficult today because the world's a very different place today. And, uh, and people growing up come out so much younger these days, uh, in my experience, at least here in the, in the Bay Area of, of San Francisco. And I, um, but I, was, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't hate myself. I just wasn't aware. I mean, when I was at the Philosoph, I, Carl Kerrigan credits me and I'm, he wrote up a history of the LGBT, I don't even know what it's called now, but it was the Gay Sock. He says that I organized the first debates on the topic ever at the Philosoph without even knowing I was gay. One was this House Supports Gay Rights, which was unanimously passed. I remember that, I remember that meeting so well, a crowded house with five or 600 people. It was probably the most controversial topic of the day because it was a controversial topic as far as I'm aware, the university had banned a similar conversation a few years before. Would this have been before or after uh, being gay ceased to be a crime in this country? No, I think it was before that because I'm 62 now and I, was, I went to UCC at 18. So it was still a crime, um, and at least for men, uh, that, that, um, to, to be sexually involved was a crime at that time. Isn't it amazing that we even have that conversation now, though, about a country where it was illegal? for two men to be in a relationship. It's it is, I mean, now we, we look back and wonder what we were thinking, of course, but it was a different world. And it wasn't just Ireland and it wasn't just the Catholic church. It was, it was all of the Western world. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just particular to Ireland. I suppose Ireland had a more, was more extreme in some ways, but it wasn't, it wasn't unique to Ireland. So anyway, I'm happy that was a little part of my own journey and that connection with, uh, I know we're celebrating Pride Month of June. And yeah, it does look strange now. There you were in your early 20s, studying law in Cork, realizing and coming to terms with the fact that you were gay and a man of deep faith thought thinking about the priesthood, but you must have known, of course you knew, that the priesthood and being a gay man could be a very strange combination. Well, it's no stranger really than any other combination. At least I don't think so. I did go and talk to somebody about this in confidence, another priest. I, I came out to him and he said, well, it doesn't necessarily preclude you from this uh, vocation, which actually gave me 
enough sense that I could pursue it. I, mm. I, I didn't, and also I was ordained a priest. I was honest with my provincial. I'd been honest with people. I didn't want to be approved for ordination without the authorities who gave that approval knowing me, uh, knowing, and that's, I mean, I'm a Jesuit, so St. Ignatius, it's all about trust and the relationship of trust. Authority is not meant to be so much imposed on people. It's sort of, it's to be earned. So I, um, I wanted that to be known. And I, 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 I know policies around the world on this vary from country to country and within country. Um, it depends on where you are in the world. You know, to this day, if you want to be a Catholic priest, you could find that if you come out, you will, the door will be closed to you hmm. or you might be asked to leave. And in other places, you're treated in the same way as anybody else. Let's talk about your, your, your journey to where you are now. And you're, you're speaking to me from, from San Francisco. But Toronto was the first place outside of Ireland. How did you end up there? Well, um, I ended up in Toronto because I was, I was studying in Dublin in Milltown Park. And I had done one year of theology. And I ran into a friend in England. Uh, and he, he's a Jesuit friend. And he said, well, why don't you do some of your formation abroad that's recommended um so i went back and wrote a letter and asked if i could do something to the provincial and he sent me to toronto uh, it was mission to finish my theology there so i went to live in toronto and that's where the, i guess i it was the community that i lived in was right in the middle of the gay neighborhood which was uh, something um, new to me at the time and it was um i found a group of catholics a faith group where we would have mass and um we were learning to negotiate, integrating, reconciling our sexual orientation with our faith. So we'd meet, you know, and talk about a book of spirituality, but we'd also go to a movie or go for dinner. You know, it wasn't just a pious group. Uh, we, we had fun together, but mm. we also prayed together and we also, um, you know, would study and, and, and speak about our own experience. And that group kind of gave me the confidence to, in myself, to be more open with friends and gradually to be more comfortable with my God, who never, who gradually I realized didn't have, it wasn't, the problem wasn't with God. The problem was more with society and, and at times the institutional church, but not everybody in it and not all the time. Yeah, and, and I will come back to that. From Toronto then on to, on to San Francisco, and 1990, you, you marched in a gay pride there. That's right. I wasn't a priest at the time. I was still studying. Yeah. But I went to San Francisco to work, and they picked that picture for the exhibition of the Epic Museum in uh, Dublin. So that's probably um, where you saw that. I was at a Catholic charities run uh, home for homeless people, so who were living with AIDS because they were the most marginal group in San Francisco at the time. So the archbishop wanted to serve the most marginal group. So I was doing a summer placement there. And the first week I was there, they said, well, we're marching in the gay pride parade next week. And they weren't all gay. Some were gay. My boss was a straight woman. And she said, we're marching. Please join us. It wasn't exactly a command performance, but I didn't need to be commanded. I went with them and it was, <laughs> The community was named Peter Claver Community, a Jesuit saint. I took that as an omen from God because it was dedicated to a, a, a Jesuit saint who had worked with slaves uh, and, and given slaves dignity at a time when they had no dignity in, in Colombia in particular. But so it was, I was very kind of proud because 
this was bringing together my Jesuit identity and my gay identity. And so, and there were hundreds of thousands of people I'd never seen, hundreds of thousands of people cheering and celebrating something like that. That was a, a moment that I'll never forget. I did get to march as a priest with the parish of Most Holy Redeemer in the Castro a few times mm. uh, over the years with my collar on. And that too was a very moving because we used to get a huge cheer. I think the fact that a Catholic group was a parish was marching in the parade yeah. uh, encouraged people. I remember somebody who might've been about 80 said, Father, what time are your masses on Sunday? Shouting from the side. That She wasn't really, <laughs> she wasn't concerned about you know, whether I was gay or not. And not everybody marching was gay. Um, yeah. We you know straight parishioners joined us, which was a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, I said, oh, it's, there's one at eight. And she said, oh, thank you. Yeah. So it was kind of, I remember, <laughs> I remember just bringing together all those things. It was very healing for me. And as I was healed, I was able to heal other people and reconcile and help other people. That's given me, my priesthood, a lot of joy over the years. I think the, the often um, with, and it's not just LGBT folk who are Catholic. It's actually their families and their parents. I mean, I've been, recently I've been working more with trans people, um, which is a whole new thing for me because it's, it's a different issue. Uh, and I've, I've had to learn a lot in the last couple of years about trans Catholics and people of faith. So we've had programs at the university here this year, um, a program of spirituality, and, but it was <laughs> listening to trans folks tell their stories. We went, I wasn't, I facilitated it. It was a great honor, but I wasn't trying to tell them what their experience should be, but it's humbling to listen to Catholics who are trans speak about their experience in terms of their faith. And in some ways their faith has become more alive through their experience because they go through the deep mysteries of the faith within themselves <laughs> in their own life. In some ways, I mean, so it's, it, it, it is actually a humbling it's, in, it's actually enriched my faith. It's not been something that has taken away anything from it. And no, the, the church, we, we are on a journey. We need to change and, and we, need, um, we need to be more open. But it is happening. Not always as fast as I'd like. <laughs> on that point, here's a little dilemma that you might face, okay? As you know, we have gay marriage in, in Ireland since 2015-16. But two men or two women cannot get married in a Catholic church in Ireland because the priest won't marry them. Do you have a problem with that? And are you, are you forbidden, for example, to do that in America? Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of different issues in your question there. One is um, the civil society's uh, take on marriage and then the church's take. So I'm in favor of gay marriage, civil marriage uh, as a human right. When it comes to the church, that's something we're going to, what we wanted, how we are going to be with uh, same-sex relationships within the church is something that is to be discerned uh, mm. within the church. And that is going to take a long time. And it's going to take the work of theologians. It's going to take the work of bishops. It's going to take the, but most of all, we need to listen to LGBT Catholics. Mm. And that's going to be a dialogue with the tradition. I don't want, I can you know, I don't know where that's going to go. I remember at the time, Donald, at the time of the referendum and the time when the law was being passed, speaking to people on this program and speaking to one man in particular, and he and his husband were very, very happy. But what broke his heart was that he could not go to church and have their union blessed. That broke his heart because he was a, he was a devout Catholic. 
and I would be very, I have a lot of empathy for, for him in that, in his experience and in his heartbreak. I, uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. However, what Catholic, what I'm, what I see happening is that Catholics and lesbians and, and people in same-sex relationships who are Catholic are finding their own ways to bless and celebrate their marriage. Because as you, you know, the sacrament of marriage is conferred by a couple on each other. It's not the priest who uh, is the one who confers that sacrament. That's the traditional understanding. So what you find is that people in same-sex relationships who are Catholic find ways to have their marriage blessed. Would you, would you find yourself, Donald, if you were, if two men wanted you to bless their union or two women wanted you to bless their union, would you find yourself in a, in a moral bind because the church doesn't want you or doesn't allow you to do that? Well, the, it won't happen in church, but there are many priests uh, and who are finding ways to bless, and others, and not just priests, lay people, who mm. find ways to bless loving, committed relationships and I um, and not in church but it doesn't but church but we have to rethink what we mean by church yeah it, it's the church isn't just in the building uh, the church is all of us so they're finding ways in conscience to celebrate who they are not to without waiting for the institutional church to catch up because the institutional church is going to take a very long time to catch up. Change is slow at the best of yes. times in any big, big institution like that. We've only been talking about it for 20 or 30 years. So it's going to take a long time of prayer, discernment, conversation to know where to go. But that doesn't mean that people don't have a home or a place in the meantime. Do you think that the church or elements of the church are homophobic? Oh, yes, Absolutely. Uh, I think I don't think Francis is homophobic, but I think much of the hierarchy is is remains uh, homophobic or, or transphobic. Uh, much of the uh, many priests and many uh, many much much of the institution remains uh, homophobic. It, and it's a dam it damages everybody because uh, it, le it, it it it's it's toxic for the church. And um, does it sadden you? It's very deep deeply. Um, I, I, can, I, it does sadden me because I, I don't think it's what, when I get to know the person of Jesus in the Gospels, I, well, he didn't talk about this topic, but I don't see somebody who was homophobic. I don't see somebody who was uncomfortable with himself in his skin. He was a comfortable person in his own skin and he made people around him comfortable, especially the people who are the most marginal and especially the people whom society looked down on. The, the God so, in whom you believe, Donald, do you think that the God in whom you believe, the Jesus Christ that you pray to, do you think that his view of you as a gay man within the church would be different to others? Do you think that his view would differ from the church of which you are a member? That's a very good question, and it's something I have considered for many years. My experience in my own prayer life and in, in, in my own faith has been of a Jesus who never had an issue with me as I am and only loved and only embraced me. And the institution is very, very slowly in recovery from a very different approach. Um, but it is happening, however slowly, and will continue because I believe in the Holy Spirit and I believe it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm wrong, but I did, that's, this is my belief. Hmm. 
Lastly, first of all, wishing you a happy Pride Month. Thank you. Can I ask you, when was the last time you got back to, to Cork? You know, just before I got back, um, I was back a year after my mother died, uh, and it was not last summer, the summer before, two years, two, two years ago. <laughs> I have a cousin's wedding in Cushendall, the, the, the daughter of a cousin in Cushendall and Antrim in the end of July, and I'm not even sure whether... I won't go unless the, there's a corridor for vaccinated people between Ireland and the uh, U.S. So I don't even know yet whether I'll get to it or not. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Have a great day. Bye. An interesting man with a lot to say, Father Donald Godfrey, speaking to us from San Francisco. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. So Donald Godfrey was talking to us, Father Godfrey was talking to us. Uh, he's part of this Out in the World Ireland's LGBTQ plus diaspora exhibition, which is taking place at the Epic uh, Museum in Dublin. And the curator of that uh, exhibition is Dr. Morris Casey. Morris, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. It's a fascinating exhibition, and Donald Godfrey is a fascinatingly interesting man to speak with. What's its purpose? Well, really, um, DJ, the the goal of the exhibition um, is part of my kind of wider uh, project here as the historian in residence, the Department of Foreign Affairs historian in residence at Epic, which is to um, celebrate the diversity of the Irish diaspora. Um, and also to celebrate the diversity of the LGBTQ plus community within the diaspora. And that's a, you know, um, diversity uh, very inclusively defined about sort of diversity of, of who people are within that community, but also of their opinions, of their religious faiths, of their um, uh, points of origin and, and destinations. Mm. There are 12 stories in the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Donald's just being one of them. Who else is in there? Well, yeah. So, well, actually, I guess you could say we have uh, even more than 12 because Donald's one of our four interviewees, but then we have um, 12 exhibition panels as well. And so the, the panels, um, so the panels cover both the, the 19th and 20th centuries, and they cover a lot of um, uh, different uh, countries and regions. And I think for me, um, the one of the first stories to encounter in the exhibition is one that a lot of people has resonated with a lot of people um, is about a woman called uh, Bridget Call who was born in Donegal in 1934 and she um, left Ireland almost for a similar reason to Donal which was as part of religious emigration and in a convent in New York in the 1960s she met a woman, Chris Morrissey, another fellow nun with, uh, and they fell in love and together then in the 1980s, they um, did missionary work in Chile, which is then under the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Mm. And when that when that dictatorship began to collapse, Bridget and Chris decided that they wanted to live openly as a couple. So they returned to Chris Marcy's native Canada. And there they initiated a, um, a, a landmark legal challenge that paved the way for LGBTQ plus inclusive immigration law. So that, to me, is, is a story that reflects the kind of stories that we're trying to tell in the exhibition, which yeah. are both about surprising locations. But I had read the, a, a newspaper article, actually, about Bridget Call, fasc, fascinating story. And she left Ireland, Donald left Ireland. They left, I guess, Morris, a very, very different Ireland. Like, at the time when 
Donald Godfrey was, if you want, thinking about his sexuality and thinking about his future. His sexuality, just being gay, was a crime in this country. And a lot of younger people, they don't get that. You sit them down and say, oh yeah, being gay was a crime. They look at you as if you had two heads. Yeah, so Ireland has has changed um, rapidly and and this history is so recent. And it's also something that we wanted to point out in the exhibition as well is that it's not linear. Many activists who are around in the 70s and 80s will, will tell you that it wasn't straightforward. It wasn't the case of of gradually accumulating victories. There was reversals as well. And, you know, we have um, divorce referendums are indicative of that as well throughout the 1980s. But how Ireland changed, and one thing that we tried to highlight in the exhibition is precisely because of emigrants and returning emigrants. People who returned home from places like London and San Francisco with models of community and activism that really shaped um, domestic social movements and domestic politics in, in, in really profound ways. It's not just people often think of the home to vote phenomenon, of course, mm. as, a, as an example of, of Irish emigrants changing the course of Irish history. But that's been a really a gradual process that's been brought about those dramatic moments of people returning home en masse to vote, but also uh, kind of the trickle of letters home, of phone calls home from places and countries which are more advanced than their own journey towards LGBTQ plus equality. And that, so in that sense, the diaspora as well has really shaped that transformation here in Ireland. Yeah. And there are, you know, it was a very different Ireland. Thankfully, it's, it's an Ireland of change. And I guess that's one of the things that we can learn from an exhibition like this is how much actually has changed and possibly in a way, Morris, how much still needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Donald uh, spoke there about his uh, his um, discussions with the uh, uh, trans people of faith. And I think that that's something um, that Ireland can be proud of in terms of our Gender Recognition Act and, and how much progress there has been on um, trans inclusivity in Ireland. But it's also that we see wider around the world that there is a lot of pushback against. So in terms of thinking how this this history isn't just linear. We also have to be to to protect the the gains that um, we have made in Ireland for the community and to ensure that we also um, pave the way for further progress and, and further inclus- inclusivity and transforming kind of every different corner of Irish society to make it more inclusive. Okay, listen, good to speak with you, Dr. Morris Casey, his historian in residence at EPIC and indeed at the Department of Foreign Affairs. And he's the curator of that exhibition uh, out in the world, Ireland's LGBTQ plus diaspora. And among them, uh, people like Father Donald Godfrey. If we go right back to the start, talking to Professor Liam Fanning at UCC. Interesting, interesting conversation with Professor Fanning on various elements of where we go from here with regards to vaccinations, with regards to avoiding another wave of Delta. And I got him to break down for me. You know, I'm fully vaccinated, for example. Now, thankfully, I've had my Pfizer. Fergal's had his Johnson & Johnson. A lot of people in this building are are fully vaccinated. Some are waiting for their second or whatever. And that's how it is around the place. So I wanted Liam to talk to me about how likely it is that I would pick up the Delta variant after being vaccinated and I would pass it on to other people and just just how safe it is. We had a good enlightening conversation there, a lot of common sense. Uh, Caller says, Professor Liam Fanning's an excellent guest. We've been vaccinated and we now want our freedoms back. The vaccines either work or they don't. 
We're being told that they do. So get things back to normal. Kate says, you see the older people still very cautious in shopping centres, etc. So you had the professor saying, I understand that, but pretty much they're okay. But the government says continue being cautious. The difference in advice isn't good for the psychological conflict. You're not wrong, Kate. You're, you're not wrong. And, and I've had to sit down with you know elderly or older people that I know and say, look, you're grand. You're fully vaccinated. Just be a little bit careful and you will be fine. You can go about your shop and you can go see your friends. Yes, you can go in and sit in your friend's kitchen and have a cup of tea with. Of course you can. Of course you can. People become partly institutionalized by all this. And I was reading some articles about it and it's a little bit worrying. Some people have become very institutionalized by all of this. So now that they're fully vaccinated and they're, they're free to at least, to an extent at least, go about their business, they're afraid to. John says lockdowns are finished. They're confined to the history books. People won't go back now and do another lockdown. We won't have an economy if we have more lockdowns. We won't need any more lockdowns, John. As David Nabarro said, Dr. David Nabarro from the WHO said in the early morning news, he was saying that if we manage our public health system properly and we keep an eye on outbreak control, infection control, we won't need to go into any more uh, strict lockdowns uh, here in Cork or anywhere. With regard to vaccines, and Professor Fanning was talking about the idea that now we should do what they did in the UK recently, is just let anybody who wants a vaccine now apply for it and get one, whether you're 40 or 30 or 20. If you want a vaccine now, apply for it and and get it because it's in the young people that the Delta is spreading. It's in the young people that the Delta is, is, is running through them. So let the young people apply for a vaccine. But Florence says, hi PJ, why is Cork so far behind with second Pfizer vaccines? It's over five weeks since my first vaccine, still no appointment for the second Ring them, Florence. Ring them. There's a number. The 1850, 24, 1850, I think, is the number. Ring them. See why you haven't got a second one. Becky says, PJ, is anyone experiencing the same with the vaccine? My 28th days is up for the second vaccine. I didn't get a date. Rang and said there's a shortage of Pfizer. Okay. Is there a problem with people getting called for their second? Because I know some of the people who went to the... City Hall didn't get the date on their card. I know when I went to my GP, I had a date on my card. A lot of people got a date on their card for their second vaccine. Some people are not getting that second that date. Some people are. Some people are getting the date written the wrong way around. We've noticed that on more than one card. On driving tests, what about the lesson backlog? My son was told late this year, early next year, that he could before he could get lessons. There's a huge backlog in the driving lessons. And Kira, I'm a learner permit holder. I don't drive without a fully licensed driver in the car. I am named on that person's insurance policy and I don't want them to have the car seized or for us both to get into trouble. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. As one of those place names, Vic had it there in the news, the sport, one of those place names that you, you hear it and you want to go there. You want to see what a place that has a name like that is like. Like Licksnaw, 
what does Lichtno look like? Another place might be Skull. Like, what does Skull look like? Or what does Termin Fecken look like? Do you know what I mean? And what does Effen look like? There is a place called Effen. Is it Effen County Wicklow? Is it Wicklow? Effen, yeah. So, yeah, Lichtno is one of those places that you hear it. I want to see what Lichtno looks like. The Random Thoughts, isn't it? 1850-715-996. Coming up in this hour, if you are frightened of the vaccine, and you'd be very surprised, actually, the number of people who are frightened of the vaccine. Not of the vaccine itself. They want their vaccine. They want it so much, they can't wait to get it. But they're afraid of their living bejiminis to actually get a needle in their arm. There is a kind of a needle phobia out there among more people than you would think. It's And it's a surprisingly painless injection. I was so surprised at how painless it was on both occasions. But people are terrified of the idea of having a needle stuck in their arm. There's a lot of it out there. Some people are even going to the point now of trying hypnosis so that they can psych themselves up for the injection. That's to come this hour. Then there's a question. Would you be nervous like that? I know a lot of people, their only experience of injections these days is probably the dentist. Do you know? And you know when you're having an injection in the dentist's for a filling or something, sometimes you think they're going to put the whole lot down your throat. Particularly if you're having one of those big teeth at the back of your mouth, if you're having any work done on one of them, like the, the syringe looks like a big wood chisel and that looks as if you're going to, you know, yeah, yeah. Nothing like that with the vaccines. Not the tiny little things. Tiny little things. And Eric, if you're listening, you're always very gentle with the needle. Don't worry about that. That Eric is my dentist. He always appreciates the mention. You've never hurt me with a needle yet. No, you ever will. I'm just saying. Anyway, if you are nervous of needles, uh, something for you in a little while. But first of all, here's a plot of a book. And certainly, having read this plot, I want to read the book. Two central characters. Catherine is a 16-year-old unmarried girl from Cork who becomes pregnant and is shipped off to a mother and baby home back in the 1970s. Caroline is a married woman in Naughties, Dublin, desperate for a child and in, has an infertility issue. It's an interesting combination of characters. They come together in a new book called Waiting for the Miracle, written by Anna McPartland, and we know Anna's track record. She's written some fine stuff. It's an interesting plot line, Anna, and there's a whole story behind it. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Good to Thanks talk to you. Me. Good to speak with you. It's a very interesting plot line, and, and I'll get into it in, in a while. But the infertility was the trigger for you, and it came from listening to a discussion. Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, um, I full disclosure, I can't have kids. So um, I'm in my late 40s now, so the ship has definitely sailed. So... Um, I have endometriosis and uh, by the time it was diagnosed, it was too late uh, mm-hmm. for my fertility. It had damaged everything possible I needed, <laughs> the equipment I needed to, to make a baby. I have a friend in exactly that position that I saw. Oh, so yeah. many people. Yeah. So many people. So what, what happened was um, I went through all of that 
And I did one IVF and I only did one because when we did the IVF, we realized the damage that had occurred to my eggs as well. And we made a decision, um, myself and my husband, that are we going to go down the line of going over and over and over and back and back and doing all this horrible, horrible, horrible stuff, by the way. IVF is really difficult and fertility stuff and keep searching for something that we more than likely would never have or would we just embrace our lives and be kind of grateful for what we have and Mm. try and forge on and at the time that was the decision we made and we were quite confident about it and comfortable with it Um, and I suppose a few years later when because we both kind of one of our consultants said to us we've got as much chance of having a baby naturally as we do with IVF now most people would take that as you have no chance at all whereas we were like well she said we've as much chance so we might as well give it a go so I'm a real glass half full person and so is my Mm -hmm. husband and I suppose years later that was gone we knew that you know there was no chance you know and I suppose I started to feel very very guilty about not putting myself and possibly both of us through all those other IVFs that we could have had and it was then I was I had actually written a kids book and I was on my way into town and I was listening to the radio and I was doing an interview um, on the radio in town and so I couldn't leave the car so I couldn't like I couldn't stay in the car and listen to the whole item so I was really stressed I really wanted to hear this item because it was a woman talking about setting up an infertility group and I think it was even as far back as the 90s and then woman after woman after woman came on and they started telling their stories and I was rooted to the spot Mm. in the car Mm. I really found it difficult to get out of the car because although my friends had been amazing to me I never had that kind of group that I could talk to about Mm. that Was it a finding your tribe moment? One thousand percent that is exactly what it was it was finding my tribe and i peeled myself out of the car ran in did the interview ran back to the car and the interview was over so i podcasted it later and it was so popular that it went on for a few days and i was there for every single one of them and i genuinely mean this when i say the book was born in that moment in that car i knew exactly Mm what I wanted to write. Before I get to the book, you used a strange word there a minute or two back and I wrote it down because I wanted to come back to it. You said guilt and guilty. Massive guilt. Why? I suppose I thought to myself that, oh, were you, why did you just give up so easily? And of course I hadn't given up easily. We had gone through a lot before we did IVF. But, you know, other people, I suppose it's because you have all these doctors and you have all these options now that, that you know, if you don't take every single option and put yourself through every single thing, you feel guilty for it because you feel like you're not giving yourself the best mm. chance. But there's also the people then, what I discovered is that when I found my tribe and when I sent out Facebook messages and asked people would they talk to me about this because I was writing this book... So many women came back to me. I mean, I had a huge amount of women that were so open and so brilliant. And they all talked to me about that. And not one of them didn't carry guilt. Every mm. single one of them. Even the women that went on to have children carried yeah. a guilt. What was it that you had at that point in your life 
you had closed the door but realised that it was still behind the door and every so often it would come out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I did, done. And I suppose there was always that part of me as well that when we gave up the IVF, I did really think, you know, you hear about these women that try for 17 years and they've gone through all the IVF, everything, and it didn't work. And then one day out of nowhere, when they hit 41 or 42, they get pregnant and it's this miracle, you know, and mm-hmm. everyone... And I was like, well, maybe I'll be one of those. Maybe I'll be one of those. And then you hit 48 and you're like, that's not going to happen. And were you afraid that you might have left a chance behind? That's definitely where the guilt came from. Um, But then having spoken to other women, because when when we made the decision, we made the decision together. When we made the decision to let go, we looked at all the facts and we looked at all everything you know all the medicine and everything and when we decided to let go we were pretty sure that it was the right move for us it was an upsetting decision to make yeah it was it was very upsetting and it was very difficult but we still both felt that there was a chance we still both thought as long as i was still within childbearing years there could be a miracle we just we we had to mm-hmm. hang on to that mm-hmm. to get through it mm-hmm. and then when there wasn't, that's when the guilt kicked in and the pain. And I, I, I suppose, speaking to the other women for the book, they all felt the guilt. And there was one woman that did everything and lost everyone as a result of, you know, just being, that, that was the goal and everything that had to be done to reach that goal was going to be done and mm. now she's on her own with no children. At the cost so, of everything else. And, yeah. and that's the guilt that she carries. So there is no right or wrong. That's the point. There is only the best that you can do. And that explains Caroline, the married woman in Northeast Dublin. So explain the other character, Catherine, 16-year-old unmarried girl from Cork. So I always felt that if I was doing a book about women who couldn't have babies and who were given every single option available to them to have these babies and put themselves through all these trials to have these babies that I needed a counterpoint I needed a balance and I I I have long been incredibly angry as an Irish woman about what happened to young Irish women in this country in my lifetime mm-hmm. um, and what happened in the mother and baby institutions is it, it's an extraordinary thing that these girls were put through. I mean, we watch programs like Handmaid's Tale and go, oh my God, that's horrific. Well, the reality of these girls and these children in those mother-babies institutions was was oftentimes far grimmer. Like, it was extraordinary what happened. And so I wanted to tell that story and I wanted to do as much justice to that story as I possibly could. Um, And... I wanted to tell the truth for these women because it seems to me that even now it is still being denied to some of them. And I wanted to, you know, express the anger and tell the tale. Um, And of course it's fiction. So, and of course I haven't been through it myself. But what I did was I did all the research that I possibly could. I mean, I read everything. I went on YouTube. I did. I looked at every interview I could find. And then I found this incredible woman. Um, her name is Terry Harrison. And I know I Terry. Like, 
she's she's an extraordinary. She's I know extraordinary. Terry, yeah. Yeah. She's extraordinary. And so Terry basically has survived uh, a mother and baby home, uh, or two, actually. It, it was one pregnancy and two homes. And basically she uh, went on to, she supports other women and the children um, who were affected by it still to this day. Um, she's very much involved in that, but she's also a musician and a poet, mm-hmm. and she's an extraordinary woman. And um, I saw her online, and I went, she's the woman I need to talk to. Everybody, that's the woman I really, really want to talk to. And of course, I had my whole character. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I went, I went to meet her, and she generously gave me about three hours of her time. And I said, look, you know, this is what I want to do. And she said, all I'm going to ask of you is to tell the truth. And she said, um, and she then started talking to me. But I asked her every question. Now, when I say I must have wrecked that woman's head, I mean, I, I mean, I asked her everything. I stop her mid-sentence and go, whoa, 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 Terry, stop, stop, stop. So what does it smell like in there? When the door closed, what, how heavy was that door when you walked through? How cold was it? Oh, by God, she can tell that story. Door? Yes, she can tell that story. She's an extraordinary storyteller herself. So I literally picked every single thing I could possibly up. When she answered a question, I asked her 10 more questions. And she went through it, like just soldiered through it, told me everything. I had the story in mind. She went, that wouldn't work that way. I'll tell you how that would work. If you want her to breastfeed, you can't, because by that time, they wouldn't allow us breastfeed our children unless the children were sick. So you had to do it this way. Or And she literally would take my hand She'd take me by the hand and she'd Mm. take me through that world. And she did it in such an open and honest and brilliant way. So so you'd learned, Catherine, from your own experience and the experience of your tribe. Sorry, Caroline. Caroline, And and now, Catherine, you learn how to write Catherine Mm. from Terry. Just speaking to Terry and all the research. And also, you know, as as an Irish woman listening all my life to it and fearing it and like when we were teenagers you'd fear that Mm -hmm. you'd be told about you'd be fear but you didn't know exactly what the horror was Mm -hmm. but you knew there was horror there yeah so having grown up with it you know what i mean i do i do now my question and i don't want to give any spoilers i don't want you to give any spoiler out but you've got these two very different women uh, and it's a fictional story yeah. Do they meet? They never meet. But there is a cross. So okay. there is something that will bind the stories together. Yeah. Um, but they, these women don't meet. Um, but, yeah. Because that would be too predictable, actually. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. It, well, I mean, you know, for me, it doesn't matter if somebody gets what the story from the first page or if they're surprised by the last page because that's not the type of stories I tell. I'm not a thriller writer. I'm not writing it for, oh, there's a big twist or there's this or there's that. I'm telling a story. Um, I'm telling these two, two stories. And, of course, because they're two separate stories, I'm joining them up. And whether you get it, as I say, straight away or not, that's really not the purpose. Gotcha. The purpose is to tell these stories and to and for people to go, 
I know that. I recognise that. And also to have a laugh along the way because you know my stories. They always sound so mm-hmm. bloody grim when we're talking uh, Well, them. you know, <laughs> you can always get a laugh out of them. And, and here's the strange thing, and I, I'm sure having met and spoken with Terry Harrison, you'll know she can be an extraordinarily w- funny woman in her own right. Funny and warm and just... And that's exactly what I said to her. I said, that is my... When I spoke to her about this, I said... And my, my unique selling point as a writer is that I take these grim subjects and I inject as much light as I possibly can in them through character. Because just because just because something bad happens to you doesn't mean that you're grim. Just yeah. because you're going through something grim doesn't make you it doesn't, grim. It doesn't need to I define you. The, no, she's the perfect example mm. of somebody who is, you know, full of joy, full of character, funny, witty, a storyteller, a poet, a musician. She has so much more going for her than that story. And that's what I do. That's, okay. These are the stories I tell. Well, I think a lot of people will be really looking forward to, to reading uh, the book. Just on another one, I spoke to you about the last days of Rabbit Hayes when that it came is. out. A film version? Yeah, yeah. Now, don't don't be holding your breath, chicken. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a pandemic. I don't know if you're aware of this. But yes, it is in the works and has been in the works since before the pandemic and will continue to be in the works because now we're in, we have a direct, we have a fantastic director, we have a fantastic production house, we have a fantastic script, and we are waiting for a casting director. And right now, every casting director between here and America is literally drowning in projects because of the 15-month lag. Mm-hmm. So we're in a line hoping to get the people that we want to work with uh, to work with us. And it's just going to delay things. And we just see where we are. I mean, the producers are still very gung ho, but I'm 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 a patient person, and I'm sitting there going, "Okay, well, we'll see, we'll see." Good. You know, come here. Are you disappointed with the wrapping up? This is a totally television addict mm. television question. Are you disappointed with the wrapping up of Holby City? Because you wrote on that. I I'm very sad. I kind of knew there was something coming because a couple of years ago they put the BBC put it out to tender. And that was a big jolt for everyone. We were like, oh, how is that going to work? Because it's a massive juggernaut and it costs a massive amount of money. But so is Casualty and they keep renewing that season after season after season. I know, but it's Saturday night compulsive viewing. True. And Casualty was there before Halby and Halby was just something. So, so... They weren't going to. They weren't going to put uh, Casualty out to tender. They were putting Halby out to tender, and then I was thinking, "Oh, this isn't long." And then actually, they couldn't get a production company to produce it for the amount of money that because it's such a massive juggernaut for production. It's such a massive is. juggernaut. Only the, only the BBC has that kind of money, and even they're running and, out of it. <laughs> and even they're running out. So the writing was on the wall. You know? ah, pity, pity to see yeah. it go. Though, even though I, I think casualty, casualty could last forever if they keep working as well as they I do think on it. Will. And a great to chat with you again. Good luck. Good luck with the new book. Good luck with Waiting for the Miracle. And I look forward to seeing uh, Rabbit Hayes on screen. I really do. Uh, thank you so much. It's always lovely to talk to you. Take care. Thanks, everyone in court. Cheers, Bye. Anna. Thank you. 1850 715 996. She's a wonderful writer. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Hi PJ, good to listen to this caller who is talking about infertility. It's like listening to myself. Thank you for having her on the show and raising this very complicated and sensitive subject. I appreciate that message. I really do. 1850-715-996. Now, there's a worried family out there. Uh, the family of Ryan Cody. He is from Formoy, uh, but he's in New York and he is missing in New York. He's 23, 6 foot, 2 or 3 inches, blonde with a samurai-type tattoo on his left arm. But he was last seen uh, outside an Irish pub in the Forest Hill area of Queens, Saturday night at 8 o'clock. And some people who had met him and been speaking with him say that he had been somewhat disorientated and confused during that day. The last time we were seen, 8 o'clock last Saturday night. Obviously, his, his family very worried for his welfare. His brother put an appeal on Facebook in the hope, of course, that anybody from Cork or anybody in New York that might know the guy might pick up on it. If anybody's any information as to where Ryan might be, uh, contact him or contact Austin Public, which was the pub in Forest Hills. He may not have his glasses, they think, which means that he would be, uh, his eyesight is very bad without his glasses and he seemed confused and disorientated by people who've met him. So maybe he's lost his glasses. That that could be a, a possibility. So we would keep a, a, across that story. It's a worrying. Imagine me. Can you imagine how worrying that must be to have a member of your family missing in a place not like New York? And the last time they were seen. People report that he seemed confused and disorientated. Here's hoping that um, that he shows up safe and well. Ryan Cody from Formoy. 1850-715-996. That copy we have, uh, that it's been covered extensively in the newspapers, uh, but uh, Cork Bio in particular have picked up on it. Just we wanted to be across it. And hopefully the news will be good in the next few days. Where am I going? I've lost my place. Ah, yes. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. I was mentioned that we're going to be talking just a minute about people who are nervous for going for the jab, but not because of the vaccine. They have no hesitancy. They want their vaccine. But what's scaring them is the prospect of of an injection. I mentioned at the top of the program when I was talking about dentists, you know, the way most people's sort of uh, most regular association with an injection these days is when they go to the dentist and you're getting a filling in the back of your mouth and it looks as if this is like a big chisel and they're going to throw it down your throat and I said, well, the vaccine isn't actually anything like that. It's a tiny little thing. Hello. (laughs) Hello, PJ. Thanks very much. I'm sitting waiting to go into the dentist. Sorry. Sorry about that. 1850-715-996. That's in just a sec. Cork's 96FM's free speaker frenzy. With Blackpool fully opened up. It's great to be back. See blackpool.ie. You want it? I never felt this good. 
All right, this is your cue to call. I have another free speaker, smart speaker, to give away on a free speaker frenzy. So text the name or text the word speaker and your name now to 083 396 96 96. Text or WhatsApp the word speaker and your name to 083 396 96 96. We'll pick someone, we'll call them. And they will have to give me the phrase that pays the magic words. Play Cork's 96FM. All right, free speaker frenzy is underway for yet another hour. 1857-15996. So there are people who... I was only talking to someone recently, he was a pal of mine, and he was saying that he's going to go for his jab, but he hasn't had an injection since he was a child, and he remembers it hurting, and he's terrified. And I said to him, look, I've been for mine, and they say to you, you know, it's just a little pinch, and you feel the pinch of the fingers. And honest to God, on both occasions, that is all I felt, was the pinch of the fingers as the person. I didn't feel the needle. It's, it's so tiny that you don't feel anything. But some people are terrified even of that. There was a piece in the Irish Independent uh, talking about a woman called Helen Ryan who is from Cork. She's so afraid of needles that she's refusing to even think about getting vaccinated. Uh, She's hiding herself away, almost cocooning in the hope that it'll eventually go away and she won't have to get vaccinated. And she says to the paper, she says, I know that it's very. people think it's very stupid to be afraid of needles, but I am. And I simply can't see beyond it. So she's going to continue, as it were, living in a cocoon until the whole thing is over to avoid the stress for her of actually lifting up the sleeve of the jumper and getting the vaccine. And to be honest, I hate to be in that position, to be so terrified. And there are ways around it. There are ways that you can just learn to deal with it. One of them might well be hypnotherapy. You could go for a therapy se- hypnotherapy session to convince yourself that this is not going to hurt and in actual fact they're not going to do any harm to you with just a tiny little needle. Rachel Gotto is a clinical hypnotherapist. Rachel, good morning. Good morning, TPJ. It's a common enough fear and one that we should never scoff at because people are terrified. I mean, I'm terrified of snakes. I can't even watch a, tele- a snake on the television. So when someone says to me, I'm terrified of a needle, I have to respect it. Absolutely. And phobias and fears, you know, are right through all the human race. You know, it's something that we usually acquire a fear of in early childhood. And of course, we're responding to it as adults and it can impede our lives and hold us back in many ways, as this poor lady is finding out now. Yeah. And there's no point in telling someone like that the story I told that like it literally is such a tiny needle. There's no sensation at all. There's no point. You can tell them that all day. It isn't going to work. Mm. Absolutely, you can. And remember, you see, the thing is, we've got this very powerful subconscious mind. And the job the mind has primarily is to keep us alive and away from pain. And that's what's happening when we have a phobia. We've got an acquired belief that something is incredibly dangerous for us. And it's our primordial instinct that is preventing us, quite literally, through a phobia for going for a treatment or maybe around animals or whatever it is. So the job of a hypnotherapist is actually to find out where this fear was acquired from in the first place. 
because the subconscious mind being 95% of the mind is the place where we store all our emotions, feelings and importantly interpretations of every single thing that's happened to us since our conception. Mm. So the wonderful part about hypnotherapy is, is once we get the client into a very focused, relaxed state of mind, we can ask very specific questions through the therapeutic process of why, what is the root cause, the origin of this. Mm-hmm. When we find it out, it's a bit like upgrading the hard drive in a computer, PJ. You know, if we don't upgrade our computers, it's going to run you know, badly, it's going to be wonky. Same mm-hmm. in our subconscious minds. We're usually responding to beliefs and programs required in our earlier lives. Right. But we can interrupt that belief. And the important part about and the exciting part about that is we can install a new belief. So for somebody with a fear can of rewrite needles, the program, in other words. Yeah, it is. And so we can actually rewrite that program in the subconscious mind to we would be trying to establish complete indifference to needles. Complete indifference to that. Just before I go to there, you seem to be suggesting or implying that there's no such thing as a phobia I can't explain. I just, it's there. There is an explanation. There's no such thing as a, an explana- as a phobia without origins. Is that what you're saying? Well, generally, we're always responding to experiences in our earlier life. And remember, we've got this primordial brain, this old brain that is designed to keep us alive. And so basically, we've got caveman um, nervous system with futuristic brain. We're doing all sorts of things now that we're we're asking ourselves to to move towards pain and to move towards fear. And it's that instinct we can't override when there's a phobia in our belief there is always a root cause of everything because remember our brains are connected to our bodies and our bodies are connected to our brains and the thing is is we all go in hip- into hypnosis naturally many times during the day pj it's not something that the therapist conjures up oh. if you if you can imagine sometimes you've driven home and you've no idea how you got home. Mm, how, did yeah. you get, how, how did you get home? You came home on a subconscious program. Your brain knows the route and you can be on the phone doing whatever you like, but your hand goes up, indicates, around, around, and you're home and you go, ah, how did I get home? The reason being is because we as humans respond to programs constantly. So my job as hypnotherapist is not to do anything weird and wonderful. All I'm doing is harnessing the power of the mind and changing the belief or changing the response into something that is more empowered, more um, supportive. And actually, from an adult perspective, we're generally responding to childish suggestions. And I don't mean people are childish when they've got phobias. It's a very real and very frightening response. Well, the origin we, may be in childhood, so that's what you mean, isn't maybe, it? Maybe, but, and it may also be in teenagers. We don't know. Each person is different, but to our um, belief, there is a root cause, and that's our job to find it so we can reframe it and reprogram that subconscious mind. So if someone turned up to you, Rachel, and said, I am booked for my vaccine in a week's time, I am petrified. What can you do? Um, it depends on how long the phobia has been there, PJ, because, you know, if we're, I'm 52, so if I've had a phobia for 52 years, I'm not quite sure that we can eradicate it in a few days. Because remember, we got to install a new program in the subconscious mind, and we know through the neuroscience, it takes about 21 days to a month to begin to embed new beliefs new behaviours in the subconscious mind. I think we could go a long way to getting somebody to having a vaccine um, in five, six days, but I wouldn't like... And to the reason I ask that, Rachel, is because most people, when they get their call, 
they've only got a few days. Yeah, I was actually talking on another radio station earlier this morning and I was saying that it probably would be a very powerful thing for the HSE to do is to have groups of people having hypnotherapy. Anyone who's got a phobia or a needle, they should have somebody trained like me in the room who can actually bring everybody else into a very focused, maybe relaxed state of mind and feeling supported and feeling held as they go through something they fear if we have a very short time frame. Right. So, is it a session? Is it? it I mean, you know, when I talk about hyp- hypnotherapy, I think most of us have a view of hypnotherapy that we got on a stage in Butlins or somewhere like that. Absolutely. And do you know what? Um, that often clouds my professional work because people fear they're going to be out of control and they fear they're going to be made of food up. Running it's around looking for a rabbit, do you know? Yeah, exactly. Or their belly button under their armpit. Do you know the stuff? But actually. It is a, a very powerful therapy, and it's been around for centuries. Now, the, the whole idea around it is that we put our clients into a focused state of mind. I'm very experienced. I've done this for four and a half years, and, you know, I've got talk therapy training behind me and other therapies training behind me. It's a very, very, very powerful therapy. And in the right hand, you can really get amazing results, and certainly around needle phobia. And this is going to be around for a while, and more and more people will surface with needle phobia. I'm quite sure of it. Whether we have a short time frame or a long time frame, if the person is determined and driven and really, really wants to heal that part and to eradicate it, hypnotherapy is a wonderful tool for many, many people. Excellent. All right. Listen, uh, good to talk to you, uh, Rachel. Thank you very much. Uh, actually, Jers on WhatsApp, I have a complete phobia about needles. I nearly ran out of Parky Creeve last week for my second vaccine. The only thing that pushed me was a sun lounger and a cocktail in Lazenia sometime soon. And the, st- <laughs> and the staff were so helpful, Ger. Thanks very much for that, Ger, and thank you, Rachel. Yeah, uh, Rachel got her clinical hypnotherapist. Yeah, the thought of a sun lounger and a cocktail in Lazenia, that would, that would actually get me... Um, through a vaccine too, if I was nervous, if I was the nervous type, or maybe a, a, a yeah, sun lounger and a a nice cold pint in 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 uh, in Paddy's Point. Yeah, we've talked before on the program a couple of years ago when we talked about it first about a four day week and the idea that we could actually rejig our working lives to give us a four day week that you'd have either a day off midweek every week or you'd have a Friday off, or you'd have a Monday off, and you'd cram your entire working week into four days. And we've had people on who've done that. I spoke to a guy, I think he's in America, and he works a four-day week on construction. Uh, He works four 10-hour days instead of five eight-hour days. And he's happy as the day is long, and moreover, happy as the weekend is longer. There's now a new pilot program for employers to test whether four-day week would work in this country and of most importance is a four-day week with no loss of pay. It's been run by and organised by a four-day week Ireland campaign. Joe O'Connor is the chair of the four-day week Ireland and he joins me. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. It's a lovely idea. I'm not too sure my job would ever work that way because of the fact it's a five-day week radio program, but I think a lot of people would like to try it at least. Well, I suppose what we're announcing and launching today is a significant development, not just in terms of the four-day week Ireland campaign, but we believe a, a significant milestone in terms of 
the debate that's taking place at the moment as we emerge from the pandemic about what the future of work will look like. We've seen in recent years, not just internationally, but also closer to home here, here in Ireland, more and more companies introducing or trialling a four-day working week with really, really positive results, not just in terms of employee well-being, but also in terms of company productivity. Um, and this is something that we've been developing this pilot programme on the basis that we think it's very important to look at, can this be replicated on a broader scale? If we involve employers from multiple different sectors in a coordinated pilot at the same time, can we see the same kinds of positive results for employers, for society, for the environment, and so on? Mm. So what we're launching is a, is a coordinated international pilot, which will take place over six months early next year, not just here in Ireland, but in a number of other countries internationally, including the United States, who will be launching their program later today. And we've developed a package of business supports whereby if you're a company or an employer and you're interested in this idea and you want to sign up to test or experiment with the four-day working week, we will offer you a training program which has been developed by um, businesses who have successfully introduced this in Ireland and, and all over the world. Uh, coaching, mentoring and advice from four-day week business leaders. Access to high-quality, world-class research through a partnership we've developed with UCD and Boston College. Mm. And then finally, the opportunity to network with and collaborate with other companies and employers who are doing this at the same time. And um, again, not just in Ireland, but, but internationally. Like I can think of employers that I know, particularly in people who have small businesses, that their, their, their big worry would be the loss of productivity. That's right. And that's why when we talk about the four-day working week, really we're talking about this model which was pioneered in New Zealand back in 2018, which is, is described as the 180-100 model. And really what we're talking about is 100% of the productivity, 80% of the time, and 100% of the pay. And where this has worked really well is where effectively... The four-day working week is about a different model of work, which isn't around measuring um, your work or your pay based on the time you spend at the office, the, the time you spend at the desk, or the time you spend on the clock. It's about shifting towards a model where it's measured based on your results, your outcomes, and your productivity. And where this has worked really well for companies who have managed not just to maintain their productivity through adopting a four-day working week, but in many cases, if you take the ICE group here in Ireland, in Galway, they've increased their productivity by 27%. The company in New Zealand, Perpetual Guardian, increased their productivity by 25%. Mm. And they've done it because effectively, in exchange for the extra day, they've been able to change their business practices, working with their, their staff and their employees, where I suppose lower value activities, lower product, uh, productivity activities such as you know long meetings or, or other activities that don't, I suppose, benefit the bottom line to the same extent, have been phased out. And, and it's, you've got a much more happier, more motivated, more mm. focused workforce who actually deliver incredibly positive results for the business. So that's I, think, really... I think if you are careful with the time off that your workforce has, you'll get it back in spades. If you don't, you know, if you if you accept that they need time off, they need a good deal of it, and you'll get back out of them if you're respectful of that. Absolutely, this is just about rethinking and rebalancing how we work and looking at a, a different model of how we we organise work. The companies that have done this have reported not just increased productivity, but a huge drop off in absenteeism, a huge drop off in uh, in, in sick leave. Uh, they've seen uh, results whereby their staff are less stressed, there's less uh, reports of, of, of employee burnout. 
And really, PJ, when you think about it, we adopted the, the, the five-day working week and the eight-hour day around a century ago. Um, and, and, and since that, we've seen, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, incredible advances in technology, massive increases in, in employee productivity. But within the Western developed world, we're working on average around the same working hours as we were in the early to mid-1980s. And we believe as we move into, you know, a new era of work as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, that now is absolutely the right time to talk about the need for an update and the need to, 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 to rethink how we organise work and to give back in the form of, of working time reduction to employees. And we're delighted that the government today have acknowledged that this is an idea, given the, the traction that it's getting internationally, given the very, very positive initial results that we're seeing from companies who are doing this, that this is an idea that we need to study okay. and to look at further. Okay. And the Department of the Environment and the Department of Enterprise have announced a €150,000 research fund to research and to study and to look at the impact on the economy, on society and on the environment of this, this idea of piloting the four-day working week. Okay. okay, It's gone from being an idea that people just talked about to something that's actually starting to happen for real uh, early in 2022 with this pilot project. Thank you, Joe. That's Joe O'Connor, chairperson of the Four Day Week Ireland Group. And there's lots of the main unions involved in that. FORSA, uh, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, Women's Council, Friends of the Earth, and many academics. We'll hear more of this. Cork's 96FM's Free Speaker Frenzy. With Blackpool fully opened up. It's great to be back. See blackpool.ie. You want it? Okay, where am I going? Going to East Cork, I think, to Castle Redmond, uh, down Middleton Way. Melanie! Hi, PJ. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? What are you doing on this fine, fine day? Oh, just giving my little boys a lunch and then maybe on the back garden or something for them. Yeah, it looks like it'll be a nice afternoon, bit yeah. of hazy sunshine. Good, good, good. Melanie, you have some important words to say to me. I do. Play Cork's 96 FM. There you go. You're our latest winner on Free Speaker Frenzy, Melanie. So I'll put you back on there to Terry and it can have a, have a chat about details and how we get it to you. Thank you. That's Melanie Porter in Woodbury Heights in Castle Redmond, Middleton. Our latest winner on Free Speaker Frenzy. And Simon has another one uh, during the afternoon. Plenty more opportunities to win a Free Speaker Frenzy. That's it for today. The programme edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Uh, and we're back in the morning just after nine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.